0: Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. To check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email. John at cageclub.me. That's J-O-H-N at cageclub.me. I'm excited to welcome into the Hard to Believe co-host guest chair, Uh, For the first time, Juhi Kamani. Hi, Juhi.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me here today.
0: I'm delighted to have you. Can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, I just love podcasts. a big fan and a big fan of the Cage Club Network, and that's kind of how we were introduced. Um, Joey and Mike had me on their podcast, Cruise Club, a few weeks ago, and I have been... I had talked a little bit about my love for Prometheus, and that was the episode that you were on, which is what was my foray into the Cage Club universe, and so when you asked me to be on this episode, it was kind of fortuitous, a nice full circle, and yeah, that's kind of my background for podcasting.
0: Are you a big sci-fi fan in general?
1: Yeah, I would say that I am. Actually, I do love. I love sci-fi, but I'm not. I don't know a ton of facts about it. Like I'm not. (laughs) Like I just kind of just like watching it. Like that's about it. it And let's just don't test me on anything. Let me just enjoy it, please.
0: (laughs) That's that's a perfectly reasonable way to go about watching sci-fi. So you, you talked a little bit about when you were on with Joey and Mike about your love of Prometheus and your love of the Alien series in general. Um, So I sent you an email and I said, hey, how about we talk to the person who quite literally wrote the book on Alien? And that's what we're going to do today. So we are going to be joined by J.W. Rinsler. Rinsler worked for 15 years for Lucasfilm. Uh, He is the author of a number of making-of books, um, including the making of Alien and also the making of Star Wars Episode Three. in addition to many The Art of books. Um, he is also the author of The Star Wars, which was a graphic novel series uh, that was an adaptation of George Lucas's original and somewhat batshit uh, first draft of Star Wars, which is a really fun graphic novel series is also a bestseller that means he's our first new york times bestseller to join the podcast so we're really excited to have him big day big day so we're going to talk to him about a number of things including his new novel and whether or not we should believe in aliens real ones i'm john brooks that's joe hikamani and this is hard to believe J.W. Rinsler, welcome to Hard to Believe. So, Juhi and I uh, kind of connected over um, over our mutual love of the Alien franchise, um, and and we we both are also big fans of your The Making of Alien book, which came out uh, just about a year ago, right?
2: Yeah, it's about right, I
0: think. Which is a which is a phenomenal making of book. Uh, it's it's.
1: It's so beautiful. It's so large, and the pictures are incredible.
2: Well, I had some. I had some help at that. It was fun at going to Fox and and going. They had a you know a fair number of photos I went through. But then in terms of the design, the designer uh, Rob at uh, Cameron Books, and then his his supervisor Ian Morris, the art director there. We all you know we all worked on it together, and it was it, you know but. It had a lot to do with it.
0: Can you talk a little bit about so so when you look at your resume and the stuff that you've done? I mean, I think most um, self describing nerds in the world would would trade um, their career for yours uh, in a heartbeat. What what brought you into this world? You're sort of a science fiction historian. Uh, if you look at your your, your body of work. Um, I know you started working for Lucasfilm in 2001. What what led you to what led you there, and and where does your love of um, science fiction and space come from?
2: I think I was born with it.
0: Day
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: one. Yeah,
2: I mean, I I grew up in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. and there was, uh, Star Trek was on TV, and that was a huge huge influence on my young life. And I, I was, but for whatever reason, I was naturally drawn to it. And, and when late, much later, I wanted to work for George Lucas. I didn't necessarily want to work there solely because of Star Wars, although the prequels had started. And so I knew it would be an exciting place to work, but really because I, I admired him as a very creative, genius type person because of American Graffiti, which is not science fiction, but which also had a huge impact on me. I think I was 10 when I saw it. That, that movie just blew my mind. It was so funny. And Industrial Light & Magic was this incredible kind of magical place where they could create all sorts of things that you'd never seen before. And I thought, this is the place to work. And I'd grown up in the Bay Area, so I you know, I knew about it vaguely and uh, just wanted to work there. So
0: what had you been doing prior to that?
2: Uh Well, I, I had a roundabout way of getting there, you know, and when I was in college and about 10 years after, I actually wanted to be a fine arts painter and I was painting and huh. doing that very seriously and lived in France for almost 10 years because my wife is French, but I'd also spent a fair amount of time in Europe studying painting. and uh, <clears throat> But then it just wasn't really working out and my also, I kind of, my interest waned and I'd always loved films and, and so my interest in film was kind of rising as my interest in painting myself was waning and I thought, well I'd love to I'd like to try my hand at in cinema and, and see if I can get somehow into the into the business. And back then, you know, you could just apply and I just kept applying for jobs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Incredible.
2: It was the beginning of the internet, you know, 1999, 2000. And they just, so they just posted whatever, job it was a small mom and pop company. Right. It really was, And there was only it Lucasfilm itself, not counting ILM and Sky Sound. There were only about 200 people working there. So they just, you know, they posted stuff and I'd apply and I wouldn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I got the fifth one. I'm not sure exactly how many I applied for, but it's four or five. And uh, I'd be very upset when I didn't get the job. How <laughs> <laughs> <I'll> bad? <bet. laughs> and uh, and some of them, I one of them or two, I was just wasn't qualified for at all. So, <laughs> but then you know they had a job for editor, and I was a managing editor at a video game magazine, and so you know that worked out. And, and Lucy Wilson was the one who hired me, who was Lucasfilm's number one employee. She had been working there since 1974, and she had. You know, she was George Lucas's assistant back when she and one or two, one other person were the whole company. <laughs> and so that was great. It was, there was great continuity there. And she would tell me about the old days. She was typing up the scripts, you know, that George wrote and also doing the accounting and, and also doing, you know, the marketing. <laughs> and really, you know, not really, but, but she was just doing whatever he had to do. And uh, in fact, because that's what George said at her retirement party. There were about I don't know 50 of us standing there, and George and and Lucy were facing us, and he sort of scanned all of us, and he and he said, "When Lucy started, she did all of your jobs." <laughs>
0: so your process when you go about writing these um, these histories, the, the the making of fill in the blank. I was talking to Jimmy before about the way that a lot of those books can be fun and informative, but Dry and almost sort of novelty books, your book about alien has been very well received and very well reviewed. We both love it um, as a as a as a as a work and uh, not just as a sort of a coffee table book and and you seem to really sort of have mastered the craft of creating something that forms a narrative and also talks about the things that actually interest people um, and, and maybe the, the corners of a film that are, that are unknown um, and very personal to sort of the people who involved. H- how do you do it? What, what was your, I mean, when you, when you wrote your very first making of, um, was, it, was it daunting? Were you flying blind? What was, your, um, what was your approach?
2: Well, it was daunting. Well, the first one, too, was different because it was more of a chronicle because it took three years and I was just writing down what I saw or what I overheard um, or occasionally a conversation that I had with somebody Um, because I was episode three and I was basically following George Lucas around for three years as he went through all the stages of making that movie. And uh, so it was a lot of standing around, not that it was boring, but it was, it wasn't like the other books, which were archival books where you I'd go into the various archives and, and do tons of research, and before I would start writing anything. Um, but I think the key is, for me, just trying to tell a an, an engaging story. And in the end, you're just you're, you're a storyteller. You're approximating what happened. You can't. There's no way you can recreate everything that happens in the making of a movie. It would take a thousand volumes, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's just and nobody would want to read it. You're taking the most interesting what seem to be the most interesting parts to you and you hope that they're going to be the most interesting parts to other people and i seem to have fairly good idea of what's going to interest other people because it's the same stuff that interests me whereas i think i think that a lot a lot of making of books get into the pro get into a problem of of just being a a chronicle of people congratulating each other Mm -hmm. that that seems to be the most common pitfall of of sort of the marketing making of books that are just a, an extension of the marketing arm, uh, and I, I always if when anybody is saying how great somebody else is, I just cut it out. We know they're great. That's why they're in the book already.
1: <laughs> Good point.
2: <laughs> it's so boring. there's nothing except you know, there's always an exception, but most of the time, nine twenty nineteen times out of twenty, I'll cut it out because it's it's just it's not interesting. They have to be saying, if you're going to be talking about somebody else, you have to be saying something, some kind of insight that, you know, somebody else wouldn't have. And so I guess there's sort of rules that I've made mm-hmm. up, most of which I probably can't recall, but which come into play when I'm editing it. And I think a lot of people also don't know how to edit what people say. Most of what people say is nonsensical. <laughs> You have to cut all that stuff out and get to the part where they're actually interesting. Uh, I think I like to do it like Warner Brothers gangster movies of the 1930s. If it's not moving the plot along, I cut it out. And uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but that that's kind of my mantra. The other big pitfall of a lot of making of books, particularly if they're about films with a lot of visual effects, is they become obsessed with the visual right. effects. Right, right, yeah. And the visual effects is not the movie right. it's an aspect of the movie and it's an important part of the movie but it's not more important than the script yeah or the casting necessarily or what the what a key actor does with the role all of that stuff is just as interesting and also a lot of the technical aspects of, of visual effects need i i put them in the captions they don't need to be part of the tech body text unless they're making some kind of breakthrough but if it's the same old you know, mat shot. People know what a mat shot is. I don't need to re-explain a match mm-hmm. shot for the twelve thousands times. <laughs> to know what a match shot is, and if they don't know, I can remind them in, in a caption.
0: So, I want to talk a little bit about Alien itself. To me, that film is the biggest paradigm shift in science fiction um, in probably the last you know fifty years um more so than i think even the original star wars uh which certainly rewrote a lot of the rules and um reenvisioned what you could do with film but I, I don't i don't feel as though star wars is a science fiction movie so much as a sort of a fantasy in space right right alien though is is far more science fiction um and it, it by sort of towing this line between horror and science fiction and sort of the philosophical broad ideas that Ridley Scott likes to play with. Um, it reset what you could do with a science fiction film and like how you could go about making one. The way the way that the, the set feels kind of lived in and and um and the everything's kind of clunky, right? But it, it, it feels like it's it's all happening and it's all there. Um, hmm. So, so to me, you know, it it is a a movie that never ages. It never it never gets old. How would you characterize it? What what was 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 writing this book kind of a was it a passion uh, project for you or was it something that sort of landed in your lap or?
2: I mean, I saw it on its first run and, and yeah, it scared the really scared the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I was one of the people along with I don't know half the movie theater. Who jumped about six feet out of their chair when the chest burster came out because nobody expected anything like that.
1: At least of all the actors.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uh, so you know, I definitely had an, an impact on me as a moviegoer. But it did fall into my lap. It wasn't something I had done. I had pitched Planet of the Apes, the making of Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. Fox, and I'd done that book, so they Fox kind of knew me. And uh, Steve Asbell, who's an executive, a production executive there, was good friends, or is good friends with Ridley Scott. Um, they had done The Martian and a few other movies together. And so he knew that Ridley Scott had all these stories and he wanted to get them down and, and book form. So he basically asked me if I would do it. And, of course, I said yes, without mm-hmm. a minute's hesitation, a <laughs> second's hesitation. And, um, and and so it was, it was basically driven by him and then Ridley Scott obviously agreed.
0: There was of course some um some tension between O'Bannon and Ridley Scott as to who deserves credit for Alien, um and, and its and its ultimate vision and success.
2: Well obviously Dan uh, Dan O'Bannon was um he had already passed away before I started. Mm-hmm. But from reading the interviews and talking to everybody, I think he had more issues which are well documented with uh, his co-writers, Walter Hill and um, David Geiler. But anyway, I think he had more issues with them because they got into a dispute which had to be decided by the Writers Guild. But, um, you know, I think Dan O'Bannon was a passionate guy and... and, um, he wanted. He had a certain vision for the movie that he, to his credit, that he did not let go of. And he, you know, anybody who was on produ- you know, there on production, he was going to let them know if he thought it was according to his vision or not. <laughs> and and in the end, it got right. to be a little bit too much for him. And uh, you know, they basically. I'm not sure exactly what happened. Roger Christian just remembers that one day he was gone from the production about I don't know two thirds of the way through or something. Whatever it was, whatever it says in the book. <laughs> I can not remember every detail. And
1: it, an incentive for people to go out and buy it.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: And Amazon is discounting it too, so. um Joey actually bought two <laughs> copies of it.
1: It was it was poor planning on my part. I was like so excited. I'm like I'm gonna get this book, and I ordered it just off of eBay to find it like a. I was not... I didn't go to Amazon. I just went to eBay. I was like, I'm going to buy it and get it. And then it was going to come way after this interview. So then I went on Amazon and bought a second one. So now I'm the proud owner of two of your books.
2: Well, now I guess you can you can uh, leave one on the shelf and give one to somebody who who's, who needs one.
1: Yes, I think I will probably give it to my brother who's an equally big fan. So we can all have this book at just like at our fingertips at all times.
2: Uh, uh, Julie, why do you like Alien?
1: So I... I think I had seen it when I was a little too young to be honest, because the the chest burster scene it was really it really imprinted on my <laughs> own memory like in a very uncomfortable way, and I was like, oh, I was really afraid of it for a while. And then, um, with the with the you know the release of the newer sort of prequels of you know Prometheus, Alien Covenant, um, I was like, okay, I need to go back and actually watch all these films. And so then I went back and watched all of them, and I I was just so take it was weird to do it in that order because I was like oh now I understand the background of why the aliens are around but it's like you know that was it was a weird way to do it the world was not introduced to it that way but I just I love sci-fi and I love space and I I just love all movies about that and this was kind of like you know the the original you know space movie I would kind of agree that it was like really blew open the doors for you know the genre of sci-fi and. I, I kind of agree. I think I read somewhere that you had said you're not. You, it's not so much about trivia. It's like what doing the research and understanding. And I, I really agree with that because it's just I like the way it looks and I like the story that it tells, and that's that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there's people. I'm sure there's fans out there who know much more about you know aspects of the costumes and the models and all that. I, I tend not to get too absorbed by the minutia. I, I I'm more interested in the broad strokes and then occasionally there's something there's a detail that interests me that i because it reveals a larger truth or something but you know i'm not the same is true for star wars there's there's plenty of fans who can recite the species of all (laughs) i I don't know anybody like that i yeah uh yeah i mean there's nothing wrong with that but it's just not (laughs)
0: just I've never been interested in movies that way right yeah so what what are you interested in I I, like a lot of what you cover and you know of course working for George Lucas and all that sort of thing and you know Lucas is someone whose whose movies have a lot of um you know everything has a meaning behind it right there's layers to everything um Planet of the Apes obviously asks some pretty Big philosophical questions. Alien. All of Ridley Scott's movies ask big philosophical questions. Um, are you just kind of drawn to that on the surface, or is is that sort of you know do, do you like that meaning of life stuff and and the um, the, the the layers of science fiction and sort of un, unpeeling those layers?
2: I like to unpeel the layers if if they're there, and even if they're not there. <laughs>
0: um,
2: but it's not just science fiction; it's any. Any, yeah, you know, we're all different, and certain movies appeal to us. And yeah. usually, if you get three people in the room, they will not be able to agree on more than a few movies that they all like. And, and that's what I like about it. I mean, everybody has their opinion. I and mean, I became obsessed with the Clint Eastwood movie *Unforgiven*, and oh, spent wow. a long yeah. Time. Yeah. it's a, it's it's a, a great draft movie. Draft. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: is a good movie.
2: Yeah, and um, and the same with *Jaws*, which is not science fiction, but. There seemed to be something else going on besides just trying to kill a shark that's killing people. Mm-hmm. So it just depends, you know, it just depends. And and I've, and I've been lucky, I guess, to do, to write about a, a number of space fantasy, like you say, Star Wars is more space fantasy or sci-fi franchise. But, you know, the guys making Planet of the Apes didn't think of Planet of the Apes as a sci-fi movie. They saw it as a uh, political right Mm -hmm. black comedy Mm -hmm. right you know they didn't see sci-fi was like way down on their list of what they were doing to the point where Pierre Boulle the author of the original novel thought where's the Mm -hmm. (laughs) sci-fi you know if they're on the same planet that they left from where's the space travel uh (laughs) yeah but but of course there is because there's there's metaphysics and there's quantum physics or something, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Some kind of physics, theoretical but, physics.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a long-winded answer to your question. Which
0: yeah, um, no, and I and I think I think the best science fiction actually is that, right? I, I always thought of of Star Trek, for instance, as as being much more about um, politics than it was about space. That that yeah, you know, science fiction that goes out of its way to have the laser battles and the <laughs> and the the spaceships um tends to be pretty empty and 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 meaningless. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like a lot of Ridley Scott's work, for instance, it's it's science fiction by um, default. That he, this is just the way he needs to tell these stories. Um and, and science fiction gives a nice kind of um vehicle to, to make those stories happen. But when I look at something like, um, alien or Prometheus or whatever, it doesn't seem like it. Science fiction is the priority. It's, it's the telling a great story and saying something interesting about the human condition, um, that, that creates the best science fiction.
2: Yeah. And you know, you'd have to ask him, what is it about each movie or story that attracts him? You know, sometimes it may just be that he has a few images that are very powerful from having read that story that he he thinks, all right, well, that's enough to go on. could be anything. Right. And I think for Alien, part of the reason why he took it on was he was desperate for a big project and they were offering it to him. You know, his career was at a crossroads. And so he took what was a dying project and he revitalized it and really saved it from development hell at that point. Uh, So, you know, it's always something like that. The whole, whole bunch of rivers or streams coming together form a powerful river.
0: What did you learn in writing the, or what's, what's like the most interesting thing that you discovered in writing, um, the, the making of alien that you just wouldn't have known otherwise.
2: All, all the sort of the, the struggle at so many levels that they had to make the movie happen. When they, I, I always find the early parts really fascinating where they, you know, Dan O'Bannon and, uh, chusette are just you know they're they're like nobodies and somehow they get this deal at fox and then it's at fox for so long and you know still nothing's happening and walter hill's gonna direct it and then he pulls out and i just love you just can't predict that stuff and i love being able to chronicle it and how it how it all sort of comes together but one of the is just sort of a little thing i i love the fact that um Alien production design is the used universe, which John Barry, production designer John Barry and Roger, and, and art director Roger Christian direct, uh, created for parts of Star Wars. And then, they, and then Roger Christian kind of honed it uh, in Alien. And, uh, but what people tend to sort of shunt to this side is that the, 2001 is, was an equal influence in the design. You have both of them. On the ship you have the very clean kind of stanley kubrick rooms like where mm-hmm. they wake up where they eat sort of and then you have the the, de- the lower decks the engine room and the and, and sort of the bridge that are much more used universe and i just love that shucks the positions he didn't go ridley scott who's like a fantastic illustrator and designer himself right. didn't just go for one look he actually had two major looks and uh i thought that i just that's just just me. I just, I love that aspect of the film. Uh, I, you know, the direction is this. So this whole beginning where they're just silent and uh, they're just going all through the ship and then the things start clacking to life. That to me, that's, that's actually my favorite part of the movie. Um, I didn't discover that. I'm just, I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Can you give us a little bit of a preview of what to expect in the making of aliens and how that project was was different um, from from the making of Alien um, in the same way that those are two kind of fundamentally different movies.
2: Well, in in some ways you have kind of the, the same story and not the same, but a similar story with James Cameron, who up to you know getting involved with Aliens had done you know one flying piranha movie. <laughs> you know, right. Jokes, he said, you know it's the greatest flying piranha movie ever made, but. <laughs> You know, it was kind of a uh, not not such a great thing to, to have directed and, and co-written that movie that, as a calling card, but he manages to you know write the Terminator script and and then makes Terminator um, just before embarking on Alien, Aliens. So I just you know that becoming part I just find really fascinating, but then also uh, and it's, it's pretty well known as you know it's his his problems over in England, making a movie where he didn't get a lot of respect at first from the, some of the English crew. And there was, there was some budding of heads and things like that, uh, that were, that was, you know, made for good dramatic tension as they're making the movie. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as, as, as you're telling the story, you need something to some kind of story within the story. And that, that was one of the elements.
0: Are you going to, um, continue on this this making of Alien. Should we expect a <laughs> making of Alien Three?
2: <laughs> no, for better or for worse, Fox is not interested in doing. <laughs> it's, it's not up to me. Uh, they they said that you know those these are the only two we're doing. They're not going to do Alien Three. Um,
0: well, how do you how do you personally feel about the other Alien well, movies?
2: I, I think you know they all have their pros and cons. Yeah. Uh, I love David Fincher as a director. Yeah. I, I don't even, I, you know, I saw them all. I don't remember Alien 4 that well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably yeah, for that's the fine. Best. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, at a certain point, I mean, I thought Alien 3 was really interesting. And I, you know, it's funny, I still haven't seen David Fincher's director's cut version of that. I have it. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't had a yeah. chance to watch it. But I think you know, with anything, there's a point where the franchise is just being made because it's a cash cow.
1: Do you feel that for sci-fi movies, when you, you have like a universe and you have characters and like in the Alien franchise, do you think that having a background or having prequels come out is beneficial to that? And, or do you think it detracts away from that? And I'm, I'm talking about Alien here and when they went back and did the newer ones that came out, you know, eight and five years ago?
2: Well, you know, you can't, you know, every, the, the people who control the purse strings are trying to, you know, keep their jobs and make money. Yes. You can't <laughs> blame them for that. Right. And <laughs> it would be nice if people would take more chances on original product, but it's, it's easy to say it's a nerve wracking job. And I don't know if I would actually want that job, uh, but I remember I read an interesting article on the, you know, the whole Santa Claus history and, uh, and also Sherlock Holmes that have been around for a long time, but who are mm-hmm. creations and, uh, and outlive their creators. I mean, particularly Sherlock Holmes. And then, and then over the years, over a you know, hundred years, things that, you know, there's plays and there's other books. And, and what happens is in a sense, the, the fans get to decide. So certain things will stick, like Sherlock Holmes' hat or Sherlock Holmes' pipe or Santa Claus—I forget what—but you know, Santa Claus being <laughs> red and white costume. But there's other things, and I can't remember what they are. But there's other things that were applied to these characters that were around for a few years and then just fell away from the canon, mm-hmm. not because anybody, not because a big company was deciding, just because people just just didn't like that part until so it was ignored mm-hmm. and just. Falls away, and the same thing may may or may not happen with things like Star Wars or Alien, where they it might be that people just totally ignore the prequel aspects of Alien, and as it becomes, let's say we develop more holocron hologram like movies, and we take it to the next level, and they say, okay, well now this is only this is the only part of Alien we care about. And you know, and, and to whatever reason, that will become the alien that people know about. And right. Only, <laughs> the, only the historians right. will know about the other things that everybody else has forgotten.
0: I do think it's 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 interesting that you put it that way because um, there's something about science fiction and these sort of big fantasy um, sweeping entertainment franchises that speaks so much to, or so definitive of a generation um, that there, there's almost like two different movies happening. There's there's the, the, the broad mass market, mass audience version of it. And then there's the zeitgeist version of it that speaks to that generation, right? And like someone of your generation, the first alien film and the first Star Wars movie and the Star Trek series, um, I'm sure have a value that don't translate necessarily um later on and i remember the 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 backlash when the prequels came out and now we have a a generation who are you know young adults who grew up on the prequels and for them like that's their star wars and they feel the same way about it that people of a older generation um felt about the originals Um, so i find it it's 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 a it's a really kind of a interesting point Like it doesn't really matter where it fits in the chronology in the long run right there's there's just something about the um the way these stories capture the imagination um mm-hmm. that it that it almost exists on two different planes at the same time
2: right and it's very ephemeral uh yeah you know most most stories of any period don't last you know they don't if you go back to the 18th century there's only a handful of novels written in the 18th century that are still read, but at the time there point. were, you know, hundreds. <laughs> I don't know exactly because it's not my area, especially. But you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. So uh, it, it it does get very kind of uh, random, and only only time or not random, but only time will will tell what what lasts. But it is fun. I mean, I I am happy that these people who grew up on the prequels now have a voice and are saying, you know what? The prequels are not terrible.
1: No, no. No. I I like them a lot, actually.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, no movie, any movie, if if you examine it as much as a Star Wars movie is examined, will basically fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. They can't stand that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. But they all have parts that are just fantastic
0: you know. No, I, I yeah, I completely, I, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a rare breed where I see the faults in, you know, all the Star Wars movies, but also just love them to to my core. Um, and, you know, I try and show, like, younger people a new hope, and they're just like, I don't get it. Like, why why would you like this movie, right? And, and they, they they, might like, they might love The Force Awakens, or they might even love Revenge of the Sith, or they just, you know, they, they watch the Clone Wars series or whatever, like, something speaks to them. But I get what they're saying. Like, you can only get, hug people and say we did it so many times in a movie before you start rolling your eyes right and and that's all over the place in the original star wars movie and most fans don't even notice because they're 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 attached to this sort of um this vision of their childhood and and that's sort of beautiful in and of itself i mean
1: i i remember seeing the like the prequels and then i remember going back and watching the older star wars and i i like them all like i wasn't I yeah. liked all, actually, if anything, I think the newer ones, I'm like less, I feel less connected to and less nostalgic about. Like, I remember loving A New Hope and I remember loving that first iteration. And then the prequels came out and I was like, this is still really cool. This is awesome. I really loved Revenge of the Sith when it came out. And so I think, and and even though I was I was born right before the prequels, and so I, I think that sometimes when they try to do like these newer iterations of things, I can kind of, and, and maybe a lot, maybe there are more people too. I'm kind of like, Oh, I, I think I maybe did like the original better, but that actually doesn't hold true for me in the alien universe, which I think is at a previous iteration as compared to star Wars. Cause there could be, you know, three more alien movies coming out in the next 10 years. And, and that would be the next <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, you know, there's things that there's pacing, which changes and there's, um, right, the culture changes, so you look at it in a different way. That was not with the, the earlier generation, the original generation, shall we say, didn't look at it that way. And, uh, and you have to the, the context changes, and uh, and certainly you know when the visual effects change. I mean, the if you look at the actual theatrical release of A New Hope compared to today, it was it's really primitive. Yeah, but that, that was the best they could do, and and it was already you just. You know, as somebody who saw when it first came out, it was absolutely mind blowing when it came out. Right? Yeah. I mean, you can't, you have to look at Logan's Run. You have to watch Logan's Run before he watched Star Wars to appreciate how big a jump Star Wars was at the yeah, time. Yeah, or like those Buck it's
0: Rogers, right? Like that's what people thought of when they thought of like space battles. Right? Buck
2: Rogers was, you know, 30 years before. Logan's sure. Run was 1976. <laughs> right. Have you, guys, have you guys seen Logan's Run? <laughs>
0: Yes, I have. No, yeah. I
2: yeah, I mean, a, and it was a big a deal. Point. I was very excited when Logan's Run came out, although it was it was fairly disappointing as a film. <laughs> Even back in nineteen seventy six. but when that star destroyer came over our heads in Star Wars, <sighs> people just freaked out. Yeah. You know? I was a, I was lucky enough to be at a sneak preview for Star Wars. And uh, wow at the Coronet Theater in San Francisco. And my brother claims that George Lucas was there as well. <laughs> I'll
0: bet George Lucas is in a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, a lot uh, of stories. I don't,
2: I don't remember that, but what, let's just say he was for the, sto- okay, the story. Okay. Fair. But um, anyway, people just, we knew, we had—we didn't have any idea that this movie was even coming. And when that, when that happened and the Star Destroyer comes in there, blowing things up and there's lasers shooting there was more excitement in the first five minutes of star wars than there were in whole movies back then yeah and then it just kept going and going and going and the the pace was extremely fast but it's no longer a fast pace now because things have gotten super fast paced compared to 1977 so you know you can't recreate that
0: while we're on the star wars subject before we um Talk a little bit about your your novel. Um, one of the coolest things you got to do recently uh, is that is that you got to write the adaptation of the original draft of the Star Wars, right? Um, which was the working title um, of the of the magnum opus for George Lucas, uh, which was turned into a comic book series. How did that come about? And <laughs> I, I would. I, I imagine that sort of thing would be just too overwhelming to even um, begin to know where to start. But um, what was that experience like?
2: Uh, Will you have the long version or the short version?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whichever. Yeah, I, can, I can edit out the long version or you can give me the short one.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I read the rough draft uh, when I was doing the Making a Star Wars book. And I thought this this is so different from the final film. They'll never film it, but it would make a fantastic comic book. And I, at some point when I was doing the book, I asked George if, if he would let me, you know, Dark Horse Comics was the comic book licensee. If, All right. If okay. We would if we could do a comic book version of it, and he just said no. And then, <laughs> and then, if years later I was working on a book that he wanted to do. Um, he, he, we had a series of books. They were called Star Wars Art. And then it was comics, Star Wars Art Illustrations, Star Wars Art Concept, Vision. And there was another one. There were five of them. And uh, they were all pretty big projects. And the comic book one, George kept telling me how much he loved comic books that were told purely visually. So, so then around that time or after that time, I found out that Randy Stradley, who's the editor chief over at dark horse that he too had wanted to make a comic book version out of the rough draft so i called him up basically and said you know george has said no but i think we can revisit it if <laughs> you guys hire a comic book artist and i'll write up a script of scenes that i know george will like I just we'll do about whatever 10 or so pages and but with no dialogue, it all has to be told visually. And so I wrote it out, and they hired Scott Collins to illustrate it, and he did a fantastic job. And we sent those pages over, and based on those pages, George relented. I didn't ask him; I just sent it over as a memo and said, "Hey, look at this. Uh, would you relent?" <laughs> and he said, "Yeah," and uh, and it did come out as a, and he was very excited about it actually. He yeah. we went from not wanting to do it to being excited about it, but then he sold the company when we were in, still doing the first issue, so then he, you know, he, he just said, you know basically do what you want with it, and so we did, uh, but we did it as a, it was eight, I think it was eight, comic book, I mean it was a series of eight comic books, and then we, then it was bound together as a, you know, looked like so it would look like a graphic novel, and Mike Bayh right. illustrated it, with Scott Collins. Uh, wasn't available anymore and and he did a great job Uh, so it was really fun i mean i'd always wanted to write a comic book before i painted i you know spent thousands of hours drawing comic books i wasn't good enough to draw one but i with randy's help i was able to write one and uh, so that was just really fun and then when it did so well it was you know it was great obviously star wars had a lot to you know it was 99 percent of it but we yeah. you know, we did our share and yeah uh, and then some people criticize it because it was so sort of hokey but that was the whole point we right. weren't we weren't trying <laughs> to say this is a lost masterpiece we were trying to say look how different it is it, it was weird it was so weird um and we just thought it was fun
0: and i think anybody who's seen the empire of dreams documentary can understand that um how Star Wars got from point A to point Z. There's a lot of hokiness and um bad pacing and unnecessary stuff uh in, in between. So it, it is really fun to sort of be able to have that um that kind of a time capsule of um, the, the kind of origin point uh, of of this cultural phenomenon and um yeah it's a it's an incredibly I, I, I read it when it came out and it's um it's incredibly enjoyable. Well, I'm um, glad you enjoyed it so let's let's talk about all up then um so the best way i i was talking to my dad about this um trying to explain the book to him uh and he's he's also of the same sort of generation very very big onto um uh space and the space race and the apollo missions and all that sort of thing Uh, and i was like well imagine if it's like a it's like a novelization of the space race as a George R. R. Martin mm-hmm. novel with a lot of <laughs> a lot of different speaking roles and perspectives and um, uh, real real life characters, but put into sort of a, a novelized, almost fantasy novel sort of a form. What what on earth? <laughs> Compelled you to write this and to write it in the in the incredibly unique and engaging and um and fun way that you that you pulled off. Uh, well,
2: thanks. I'm I'm glad you're. Did you read it? To have you done with it? Have you read the whole
0: thing? I'm not done with it. I but I've 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 gotten about a third of the way through. But I'm I'm uh, plotting. And in typical well, well, glad...
1: fashion, I have ordered it and it's not here yet. But I'm going to get it soon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoy it too. Uh, I mean, it was that was definitely a passion project. Nobody came to me and say, "Hey, would you write this?" That was, that was, I mean, in a way, it's two bananas to, to start because there are quite a few characters, although there's, you know, two through lines and we have Ferner von Braun, who most people have heard of, who was the sort of architect of the V2 rocket and who was smuggled to America during Operation Paperclip and was instrumental in all of America's key rocket programs. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Soviet counterpart, Korolev, who is this, whose name was secret up until after he died, who was you know uh, the architect and and really the this incredible engineer who is behind Sputnik and the first man in space and the first woman in space and all these Soviet firsts and uh, I, I just I became really interested in it just because you know my parents woke me up and I saw the actual moonwalk so that blows your mind when you're six seven years old
1: wow and
2: and then and then um, you know I, I was always sort of interested in and it was galvanized. I went to the Hunt Museum in Huntsville, Alabama, and saw an actual Saturn V, which, you know, the, which is the rocket that basically blasted them off to the moon, on its side. They had the, it's not a replica, it's a real Saturn V on its side. And it just, it blew my mind again. And I thought, and then I saw, I started learning at Operation Paperclip, and I thought, this is amazing. And the other key thing is, though, and and you know this because you're into the book is it's not all up is not just about the space race, which typically refers to what happens during the Cold War, which is after World War Two. Right. All, all up. The first half of it takes place during World War Two, which is more about who were these these Germans and, and, and these Russians who were the first really to really get, you know, to make headway making rockets and a little bit about who was the American Robert Goddard who actually ma- made the first successful liquid fuel rockets and this, th- how they were just considered to be nutcases. You know, who, there was no way anybody thought that you could make rockets that would be viable and would actually fly people except for Jules Verne mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and the, and dreamers and, and mad people. And yet, The German army decided to go ahead with rockets because they weren't outlawed by the Versailles Treaty after World War One, and uh, so they could do what they wanted to, basically without fear of being shut down. Mm -hmm. And um, and then this incredible cat and mouse game, as the as you know when they're actually the war starts, and MI6 is trying to figure out what are they doing here, why are we getting these reports of what sounds like rockets. And there was huge uh, disagreement at the highest levels, you know, with Churchill and his science advisors as what was actually possible. And uh, it spent, it, I, you know, I and these were real, this is all real stuff. And the book is about 90% based on real documented stuff. And I right. realized that people just didn't know about it. And it was just such a great story. And, and, it's, and uh, so exciting because, you know, um, and, and horrifying, not just, you know, it's not just a summer page turner, although it's, it's supposed to be entertaining, but it's also horrifying because, you know, the German army eventually was working hand in hand with the SS and they're using slave labor to make the V2 rockets and thousands and thousands of, you know, prisoners of war are dying in the, in the efforts because the SS are basically killing them because they've all gone completely insane. Uh, which is which is a you know which is another part of the novel is why are these people how do they why do they go insane and who are we as a human as humans uh, and what did we go through and who are we going to be when we actually get to Mars are we going to still have aspects of that craziness or are we going to somehow rise above that 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 you know the, those are sort of underlying questions of the book but so anyway it was just a huge huge passion project and only a crazy person would do it.
0: Yeah, so early on in the book, um, there's an appearance by um, Fritz Lang, who is one of the godfathers of science fiction. Um, Metropolis, mm. obviously one of the one of the landmark uh, science fiction accomplishments, and still you know, to this day is influential. And, um, and Jack Parsons comes up, and you know, there's there's it's hard to find someone as brilliant and um, and. Absolutely lunatic as as Jack Parsons, and um, mm-hmm. I, I have to do an episode about him at some point, um, dedicated entirely to Jack Parsons, because that's an incredible story. But um, you know, early on, you sort of get the sense of like, oh, okay, so we're there's there's elements of you know um, the 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 vision of science fiction, and then also these these really pretty crazy people who are also visionary geniuses, um, and and your ability to kind of weave those into a tapestry. Um, and see the connections right between the actual going to space and also the the, the Jules Verne vision of going to space. Um, how, how did you balance that as you were as you were writing it? Certainly, like this could have been a straight um, nonfiction book, right? Mm-hmm. That that you could have just decided to sit down and tell the story of X, Y, and Z people in in nonfiction. But you you chose to write it as a um, as a novel. With all of these appearances from people that we wouldn't necessarily think of um, as as being instrumental in in that story, uh, the the story of getting to space and walking on the moon and whatever. I else. think
2: that the main reason was is I wanted to talk about things that if you were writing a nonfiction book, can very hard to prove to readers that it should be part of the story, uh, and, and and to me the, hmm. there are two two or three. Originally, I had a longer version of the book and there was even stuff more about the occult and more about Jack Parsons and the occult and Hitler and the occult. And uh, I mean, Jack Parsons was definitely involved with that. Hitler is more, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. And even if he was, it's not so clear if he took it seriously or not. Um, But I wanted to have those aspects. But then eventually Jack Parsons fell by the wayside because I, I had to make the novel shorter to get it published and i couldn't as interesting as his storyline was i couldn't justify it in terms of apollo 11 because he wasn't directly you know enough for the story anyway directly involved to be uh to justify his inclusion per all of apollo 11 but the other thing i really wanted to talk about was ufos and what they called flying the flying disc problem and uh There were certain people who placed Von Braun at Roswell afterwards. You know, he was part of one of the experts brought in to analyze what had happened. And I thought that was really interesting. And if you've read uh, Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, about the reverse engineering that was going on, uh, and uh, and Von Braun had said to somebody, yes, we definitely were involved with that. And what do you think? How do you think we got? some of the things that were on Apollo 11 <laughs> and, you know, and all that is, well, they'll say, well, that's just one or two people said that where's the documentation. And of course that's very hard to document, but I thought enough things dovetailed during the research that I thought that was pretty compelling. And so I decided this would make a, this would work as a novel because a novel is a novel You know, people can take it or leave it and they can do their own research and uh, they can, uh, Decide for themselves whether it holds any water, but I thought either way it's going to make a great story. Yeah. Um, but still, that still only about five percent of the book is about that stuff. But it, but it was worth. And also, I want to get in people's heads. I I wanted to. It's it's a literary interpretation of seven years of research. You know, it's just like right. It's you know the same way that a behind the scenes book nonfiction is. You're basically cherry picking the most interesting aspects of it and, and trying to tell the most interesting story It's the same thing doing a historical fiction novel except that you can get into people's heads and you don't have to always be telling exactly the same truth exactly the truth you can you can embellish it and you can make it a little bit more fanciful and you know some of the characters are composite characters and there's a couple characters like rachel who's you know, based on a few secret agents, is basically she is, you know, my own creation. Um, so you know, you can do more and get away with more in, in a novel. And it'd be nice if if a producer was able to pick it up and sell it as a TV show.
0: Oh, it would be so good as a TV show. Awesome. Yeah, yeah,
2: it would, right? It would be pretty cool. Like, <laughs> recreate the secret base and all these cool things. Now with digital technology, and you could have people speaking German and speaking Russian, and, it would, it, would yeah, really and it would
0: make a great like Amazon or Netflix series. Just just putting it out there, if any producers <laughs> are yeah, listening right now. I
2: mean, uh... this is the, this is the book for you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean the it, the book is. I don't want to ruin anything, but it it's set up so that it could have. It's it's self-contained, so I don't want people yeah. to think it doesn't have an ending. The book definitely has an ending, but there are certain elements in it that would lead to a sequel. And even to appreciate, <laughs> uh, it could be three books. And sure, I would love to. I would love to do it if I if I could swing it. Yeah, definitely. Huh.
0: So I'm going to ask you a um, stupid question, but I'm 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 curious just to get a sense of the way that you think. And I and I know this is something that Juhi also um, thinks about. Uh, so I'll ask you both to give me your own perspective. Do aliens exist? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh Jewy, you want to go first? Oh
1: well, <laughs> undoubtedly is my answer. um,
2: oh wow, yeah.
1: oh, I'm a, I, I want to believe, come on let me. um but uh, I was I think I had brought this up with John earlier but like two months ago in in the fury storm and absolute catastrophe that is this year didn't the pentagon release these videos mm-hmm. of like those unidentified flying objects and i watched it and and you know it, uh, people did not talk about that enough i'm, I'm still hung up on that <laughs> it, i think it feels like things have been happening at a crazy pace this year and they're like okay we'll just release it now and no one will really notice and not that many people notice like i feel i know I feel like more should be going on with that, but yes, my answer is undoubtedly yes. But you know, maybe maybe they just saw what was going on and were like, "We'll come back at a better time for you."
2: Well, if you're, you know, I, I was uh, in a kind of conversation with somebody, and I just did a quick search on the internet because I just wanted to say, "Look, I'm going to do a quick search on the internet and see what comes up," just to sort of prove to you. And the first thing that came up was uh, the the first British astronaut a uh, woman. And she said, she told, recently told the newspaper, alien pretty much what you just said, Julie, aliens exist, period. <laughs> she's, she's an astronaut, you know, and, and uh, a historically important person. And there are several astronauts that have gone on the record saying, oh yeah, we saw this and we couldn't explain it. We don't know what it is. And these aren't people, you know, who don't want have any experience and don't know what they're looking at. These are professionals. There's a series of books by Nick Pope, who is highly placed in Britain uh, in terms of the defense program and things like that. And he's, they're actually, a couple of them are kind of boring, but they're just, <laughs> but they're just endless <laughs> uh, eyewitness reports of retired Air Force and commercial airline pilots. It's going, well, we were there and this thing started flying right next to us, and you know, it's looked like a cigar and then it shot off at twelve thousand miles an hour and disappeared. You know, just endless stories like that. It's like they're not all making it up. You're not right. And yeah. The the yeah. ultimate book, one stop, if you if you are interested in this stuff and, and or need to be convinced, it's called the disclosure. Have you guys ever heard of that? No,
1: no, I don't think so.
2: It's uh it's getting harder to find, but you can still get a copy online for, I don't know, 60 bucks or something. It, it came out at, about 10 years ago, and it was, a they had basically a big press conference and ahead of what were, were supposed to be hearings on, on Congress, I believe. And uh, it was just an endless parade of ex-NASA, top military officials, top government officials, basically breaking their oath and saying what they had seen or what, what they had heard and what actually happened. And it's mind-blowing and there and like you say just like the Pentagon stuff there wasn't a single you know for the and the next there was not one single newspaper that covered the event
1: why <laughs> and
2: these it wasn't like make there was a whole room full of people you can see videos on YouTube of the actual testimony you know it's all hundred percent real and uh, it just was not picked up by anybody and it and it's Makes you think. So that's
0: a that's a that's a yes for you. Uh, I uh,
2: yeah I don't know. (laughs) I think what I'll backtrack a little bit. We don't I don't know what exactly is going on, but something is definitely going on. It's not recent. It's been going on. I actually uh, was lucky enough to have dinner once with Jacques Vallee, who uh, is one of the guys who created sort of what became the internet. He's a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. He's also a writer, you know, a very good writer. He's won the Jules Verne Prize in France. He's French. And the guy, have you seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yes. Of course. Well, French guy that that is based on him. Oh, okay. And I I had dinner with him and he basically started by saying, look, you know, I can't tell you certain things. (laughs) Right? So that's already (laughs) saying something. And he's he's recently, or about five years ago, released a book that was basically, about all the different artworks and things pl- showing unexplained phenomenon. Let's say you know from the beginning of recorded history, you know up until recent times, this is not a recent phenomenon.
1: That Prometheus isn't looking so crazy now.
2: <laughs> no, I mean to me, people who just sort of laugh at it to me are people that really just either don't really care about it, which is fine, or they just they just yeah. haven't done the research.
0: I, I definitely care about it. I have for my entire life. I'm also a, a, I, I naturally am a skeptic and I, um, I will find every reason to, to, you know, debunk everything that I can. So far, I haven't found anything that I haven't found, um, reasonably debunkable. Um, I'm always looking for it, but I, I, the reason I ask you is that I know that you are, you know, you've done a great deal of research in these, um, these areas. And so you probably have more insight into it than, um, than someone like me. And I'm
2: far from an expert. I mean, there are some real, again, experts out there and there's conferences and things like that. And there's, but there's dozens of very serious books Mm -hmm. and people who've done years and years of research. It's just, it's, it's just, they have, it has, but the, and maybe the Pentagon and maybe the white house now is getting prepared. To say something, but it's a huge it's a huge admission on their part of lack of control. So I can understand why they don't want to do it. Right. It's it's right. uh, it's not at all clear what the reaction is going to be. And and recent recently there was a, and this is in the in the all up. It's part of what all up is based on. Was I forget who came forward, but said that Winston Churchill had you know helped cover up you know the UFO phenomenon during the tail end of World War Two because it was kind of heating up. With the Foo Fighters, and they were seeing weird things. And as we, you know, as we um, uh, perfected, shall we say, atomic weapons, you know, the the sightings increased because, for obvious, what could be obvious reasons, but we really don't know. And and also, we're not talking about one group of aliens, you know, like the Klingons or something. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we don't even know how many groups we're talking about. Sure. You know, yeah. it's very, I find it, but I find it truly fascinating.
0: If it turns out to be Klingons, I'll be really surprised, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that fun note, um, JW Rinzler, thank you so much. Uh, what fun this has been. And uh, once again, your book, All Up, is now available, came out last month. And is there anything else on the horizon that we should know I about? I did a
2: book with Howard Kazanjian, who's producer of a couple of Star Wars movies, and uh interviewed marcia lucas which was very interesting and that book coming out in the spring but we should have more news and people can if you want to follow me or whatever on twitter or sign up for my newsletter on the website i'll be sending out updates you know when i have them
0: great well uh jui jw um thank you guys Great time. You can find JW at his website, jwrinsler.com. That's R I N Z L E R. He also tweets at JWrinsler. Juhi is on Twitter, at Juhi Kamani. That's at J U H I K H E M A N I. Thanks again.
1: Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, Juhi. Thank you, John. It was fun.